you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Passell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, Tubi, Voodoo, YouTube uh, with ads, wherever you want to watch it. I'm Liz Manishaw. I'm a writer, director, producer who has directed two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. Everyone calls it Speed of Light, but it's not. It's Speed of Life. I'm currently making a third one called Best Friends Forever. I am a producer's rep who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. First off, Happy New Year! Happy New Year! 2024! 24 is uh, the best number, so this will be a good year. Wow, why do you like 24? Why is it the best number? Oh, I was born on the 24th. Aha, it is a very, it's an egotistical reason. It's just a very, a, I love it. Yeah. But that's a good yeah. reason. Yeah, I think so. And on this week, on this wonderful New Year week of the show, we welcome trailer editor and owner of the trailer house, the refinery on the show. His name is Brett Wynn to talk about the art of making a trailer, how the business works and how he landed in trailer editing out of film school and his long journey to starting the refinery. Also talks about a feature film that he co-directed and and edited, too, which is pretty fun. After that, we play another round of the game. But first, Liz, how are you doing? I feel really good. I feel pretty damn focused about making this movie in summer 2024. I feel like if I don't make my next feature this summer, I'm going to have to wait an entire year because I don't want to. I don't know how to make a feature with kids in school in LAUSD where you have to get them to like we wake up at like 530 to get our kid to school by 740. And then we pull them out at like one o'clock in the afternoon. Like, I don't know how to make a movie with competing schedules with children. So I feel very focused that we're going to make this movie this summer and we're just going to figure it out. All right. We're just going to figure hell or high water. We're making this movie this summer. Yeah. I believe you're going to do it six months. That's enough time uh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. If you're like, you set yourself the goal to do it. I mean, that was basically what I did with the alternate was I was like, we're going to, I'm going to make this movie this year, probably around May of the year I made it. And then I made it in November. So (laughs) yeah. There you go. Yeah. But is it like, uh, do you feel that like if, if you got hired to direct something during the school year, would, would there be a solution where you could go take that director for a higher job? If like some, something happened and yes. you were going to get paid to direct a movie? Yes. There is a solution. Okay. If the pay could cover the sitter, right? Mm. You know, the child care, then yes. And it's worth it for me. Even if, even if I don't really like net a positive number out of that experience, it's still worth it to be able to, to be able to get to, to direct. Right. As long as you're not, as you're like, you're breaking even basically. Yeah, that's fine. But if, but this film, I don't quite know what budget we're going to land on. I don't think I'm going to get paid. Like, you know, it's going to be that classic indie film. Let's stretch the budget as far as it can go. Yeah. Thing. And for that, I I don't think, I mean, uh, L.A. childcare is very, very expensive, just like it is everywhere else in the yes. world. Yes. And it, it would be too hard. And also, I want to see my kids, you know, I want to see them on the off hours. One more question. Yeah. What, a, what about your three or four day shooting schedule idea where you'd shoot for three or four days, like over a long weekend, maybe take a break two months later, shoot three Two month later, shoot three, whatever. Is that something that you would consider or no? I would consider it, but it hasn't caught fire with anyone we've talked to, right? So I, th- most people want to 
bang it out. Yeah. 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 Yeah, well, F him, you know, like that's what I like. No, no offense to my collaborators, because I have a couple collaborators who would say the same exact thing. Like that was like what I think my DP said. And I, I love my DP. But, you know, like if if your long term team aren't weren't willing to work with you in the way that you need to to do something, because yeah. th- this is art and it's it's, uh, you know, it, it doesn't it's not for free, you know, <laughs> like someone has to pay for it. And and it takes up all your time. It's well, then you could. I'm sure you could find collaborators who you who you love who will be able to work with what you're trying to do. You I'm know? actually kind of tempted to go out of state. I didn't think I'd ever would, but if we if we make it in the summer, I could potentially go out of state with the whole family, rent an Airbnb, mm. figure mm. out something for the kids to do like a camp with better hours, and then I could abide by. I mean, I could work with a smaller budget like in Kentucky or Georgia or Alabama and make Mm. the movie there. And so that's actually what I'm looking at right now is I never thought I would, but going out of state and making this movie. That's something that I've dreamt about, too, is like removing the family out to uh, to where we're shooting the thing. What are you? How are you doing? You tell me how you're doing. How am I doing? (laughs) I'm doing okay. I wrote like four pages last week. Oh my God. It was amazing. I just sat and I just wrote like Beth wasn't feeling well. She went to bed early and I was like going to do some work that I had to do. And then instead I just looked at the script and I just wrote for like two hours and it was incredible. That's awesome. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, it, was, it was a great feeling. I mean, I, I'm like, you know, I'm not done with the script or anything. Like I'm almost at 60 pages and I think it's probably another 20 to 30 pages that I have left yeah. roughly probably maybe 85 like I know I know me like I know the way I write like it's gonna be longer like if if I get to an 80 page script it's probably gonna be a 90 minute movie from 80 pages or longer you know so I'm not really worried about it having to be 90 but somewhere between 80 and 85 I think that would be good you know so that was really exciting Uh, watching lots of Christmas movies I talked about that last week yeah I don't know you know, thinking about my future as a filmmaker, you know, and basically like almost exactly what we just said f- for you, like like being ready to like drop it and go make a movie, drop it as in life, you know, yeah. and figure out a way like where if I did get hired to direct something that I could just tra- like uproot what I'm doing and go do that, you know, and then come back. Yeah, more more like thinking about what I, we are discussing was like just doing it in chunks, like you know, this movie I'm writing is like kind of designed where you could do it in chunks pretty easily. So I'm like thinking about how I could do this in Vallejo, shoot like a long weekend, you know, take a break, edit what I have, shoot another long weekend, fly in actors from Los Angeles if I have to for like, you know, a, a crucial role, you know, to get like a little bit of, yeah, you know, fire into the movie. So that's sort of like where my head's at right now. So I'm, I'm basically trying to partner with people in my community to try to see like who are the people who want to be a part of this and like help me make the movie. And my special effects artist lives here in the same town that I live in, which is great. Yeah. And she just got a studio like really near my house. So like, you know, she was in Oakland before. It just kind of happened that we both moved out here to the Vallejo area um, within the, ne- the same like two, three years span. And so that's really awesome. Yeah. So, you know, that's sort of what I've been thinking about. I was like, how can I do this? Like, lean and mean and like in my town because like I feel like the opportunities that I'm going to get to like direct a movie are going to come they're going to be very few and far between and trying to raise a ton of money for my next movie is also probably 
going to be a challenge. So like just trying to do it roughly around the same budget I did the first one, but then do it in this way where like I take the pressure off and then I don't have to leave the kids for so long and I can just like, you know, be with them like, you know, four days out of a week and then like take three days off or four days off and go make the movie. But like, but sleep in my bed every night, stay in Vallejo, you know, not have to like whatever. And that's like not as big of an ass for my, for my, for Beth, you know, to like take care of the kids for like, Also you, you got to like look at them. You got to like peek yeah. in their door in the morning at night, you know, that's important. Them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like, I think that's cool. And then I'll be, then I'll like have a movie that I can edit part of and then I can look at it, see what's working, see what's not. It'll inform the writing of the rest of it, you know, and like maybe I'll find like, oh, I don't need to shoot this scene because I already like have something that works for, you know, I just think it would be a fun experience to do for the next one. But like, yeah. So, and then it also like makes it so you don't have to have as much money all at once. So I can fundraise in pieces rather than all together. So if I get someone to give me $20,000, then I can be like, oh, here's, I got 20,000 and then now I can get another 20,000 and then I can just shoot it in 20,000 weekend chunks or something maybe. You know? Yeah. I think that sounds perfect. Yeah. But you know, we'll see how it works out. The other thing that uh, you can check out that's really cool, too, on this wonderful New Year's Day is our Patreon page. Go over to www.patreon.com slash podcast. That's uh, the way that the show continues to live, to exist, to move, to happen. And so thank you all to our Patreon patrons for supporting the show. If you drop $1.99 a month, then you get access to our back catalog, which is going to be around 400 episodes at this point, because we're over at 450 Jesus, 458 at this point, I think, um, and many more to come. So, uh, yeah, there's ton. There'll be tons of episodes behind the the paywall. But yeah, so check that out. And uh, we do some bonuses. Uh, we do some little things here and there for our patrons. And uh, we will be doing more in the future, I'm sure. Also, make sure to check out the Blood and Popcorn Film Festival. It's a micro horror film festival that celebrates barrier filmmakers and spots like international talents year-round with multiple horror film screenings. Enjoy the best curated collection of horror short films and features that offer spine-chilling frights and gory delights. You have till January 16th, 16th to get your submissions in, and you can use our waiver code EVILPOP3, that's E-V-I-L-P-O-P, Three to get 50% off your submission today. So find them over at filmfreeway.com slash blood and popcorn film festival. And without any more delay, here's our chat with Brett Wynn. Well, hi, Brett. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. This is fun. Normally we ask about the, the latest movie you've made, but since you are a trailer editor and run this this really big company the refinery just give us like a quick bio about uh, who you are and and what you do do you want the the trailerized version of my career up to now is that <laughs> yeah exactly. the two and a half minute version <laughs> yes. sure so i i went to film school to be a filmmaker much like everybody else and i actually believe it or not did make a film that came out in 2005 called my date oh. with drew oh i saw that oh i saw my date with drew it was great yeah. it was very fun <laughs> thank you Coincidentally made with my two college buddies, believe it or not. But anyway, so I do have some experience in the actual filmmaker world, and I've cut a few features. But I went through the winding path of entertainment marketing. I'm not really sure how or why I got here. I just know my first real job. I landed a production assistant job at FX Networks when they launched in 94, 95. And at the time, there was maybe 10 people in all of FX. So even the smallest person in the room had a voice that could be heard. 
and somehow ended up in on-air promos, which I didn't even know what that was, but I dove in with both feet and always had a real passion for editing. I mean, I love directing and producing, but I always had a passion for editing. And so my career took me from FX as a production assistant coordinator to Fox as a post-production producer, eventually a writer producer to a company called Studio City as a writer, producer, editor, and then to Trailer Park, which is a known trailer company, to start a broadcast division, which at the time trailer companies didn't have, and quickly started that, but then got usurped into theatrical trailers, which is really where my heart was anyway. And so I helped them launch the broadcast division and then had a successful career as a senior producer, senior editor. I cut trailers for almost all the Pixar movies from started with TV campaign on the Incredibles and then got into cars and then Ratatouille and then Wally by Wally Disney approached me to come over to, to go to the client side, to leave the agency side and go to the client side. And so I went to Disney for a year uh, to be a vice president of creative film services and found out that I wasn't ready to coach. I still wanted to play ball. And so after a year, it was either career suicide or the best thing I'd ever done, but I knew that that career path wasn't for me. And so I left and and launched the refinery with two of my print friends from Trailer Park who had also left, Brad Hochberg and Adam Waldman. And that was, oh my gosh, 16, 17 years ago. And now we've, we started with just a few people in Adam's house and now we're about 170 big. Wow. Wow. Can I ask you to clarify two things? Yes. One is... What is a broadcast division for, I mean, like, does what is a broadcast trailer? Is it just like the older definition of broadcast television? Go on. Yeah. So back in my day, I'm showing my age now, right? But it was a very, very different worlds. Broadcast, the major networks, the major four, right? ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox. And then the cable networks also would do broadcast promos, we would call them, right? And most of the time, they were only 30 seconds or less. 30s, 20s, 15, 10s, or 5s that the network would run to promote, you know, their shows. So commercials for their TV shows. Trailers on the other side, where we think of trailers as the theatrical trailers that play in the movie theaters, and they were always followed up by a TV campaign. And so doing a 30-second TV spot for a television show that ran on broadcast television was very different than cutting a 30-second TV spot for a movie that was going to be released theatrically. In my eyes, as at the time, you know, movies were were the top tier. They were the top shelf. That was what most editors or, or trailer cutters, promo cutters were aspiring to get into, primarily because I always felt movies were better than most TV shows. I mean, you had a few breakout TV shows here or there. And then the wonderful world of streaming happened. And all of a sudden, I don't know what's better, right? I don't know. There, there are many, many, many shows that hold up to, the, to great films, you know, in fact, in today's world of content is content, it's the lines are, are more blurred than they've ever been before. And then the other question was just, you said your friends from print is print advertising, like they came from that world or so they, they came from theatrical print. So we're all in entertainment marketing. So they would do movie posters, billboards, digital displays. And so now we've built this agency that does, we call it print digital and AV. So digital would also encompass behind the scenes pieces. It would encompass social marketing, which is slowly rising to the top now, or quickly, I should say, rising to the top. And then we do work for broadcast, which still exists, for streaming and for um, theatrical. 
And are all the trailers like? Is there any crossover? Like, would a would a trailer that's in the movie theater also show up in broadcast, or are they always completely different across all the different streams? Or do they like when you're cutting a trailer? Do they do you do you work off the same like project? And it's like, oh well, you know, we're gonna do this one, and then we're just gonna cut it down. Or is it a completely different editor, completely different team for broadcast, social, and movie theater? They're usually different but it's interesting because I, I don't want to blur the lines here there's there's broadcast and theatrical which is like where the product lives but then there's also marketing that goes out to broadcast or marketing that goes out to the theater or marketing goes out online and so it can get confusing i think it's easier these days just to talk about are we talking about a series or are we talking about a film mm. and, right. and and what used to be was if you were working on a series a tv show the only time you'd really do a long, longer format piece, like a trailer, like a two and a half minute would be for an upfront presentation where we would use these marketing tools to get advertisers into the, to the networks and get them bought in on the next upcoming season, their programming. But most of the time, most series, you'd only be cutting 30 second, maybe a 60 second spot on occasion, but most of the time versus theatrical, theatrical, you'd have your full two and a half minute trailer that would play in theaters and for a long time, that's the only time you would see that two and a half minute piece. And then occasionally they start running a 90 second version of the two and a half minute trailer on, on network television. But most of the time, that two and a half minute was reserved for in-theater experiences only. And then all of a sudden the internet blows up and you can run those trailers on YouTube or you can run those trailers digitally. And so now what we're finding is you can have a two and a half minute trailer or longer. It used to be two and a half minutes because MPA limited how much time you were allotted oh. uh, in the theater. But now it doesn't matter because it's if it's online and you can keep people's attention for three, three and a half minutes, go for it. But now every series has a trailer as well because people, I think people love trailers. I love trailers. I think there's something very magical about trying to encapsulate the, the, the tone and feel of uh, of content in two and a half minutes. There's an art form to it that I love. And there's something that people really respond to unless we give too much away. And, and then in that case, they wish they hadn't seen it. <laughs> there's a lot there. I'm going to, I'm going to go back a little bit just so you know, like our work works in post-production. I'm a producer's rep in distribution. So you've got two nerds. That's why we're getting so in the nitty gritty of what you're doing. Love it. And I actually often advise filmmakers to do under two minutes because I thought that's how the industry was trending. A lot of the films that I work on as a rep do mainly digital releases and not theatrical. And so they're not necessarily doing these 10 to 200 market theatrical releases, right? What are you, in terms of like indie, like very indie, because I think you're working on some big things. Are you advising that indie filmmakers also do that traditional two and a half? Or are you encouraging them to streamline a little bit more like like I I do? I mean, today's audiences have shorter attention spans than they used to. I think the two and a half minutes has been crafted for so long because it fell in this window of like, that's people's attention span. So when I say two and a half, I usually mean, I mean, two and a half minutes or less. Mm, okay. So yeah, if you can get in everything you want to get in in two minutes or 90 seconds, even better. I think people will appreciate it even more. But I, I think that it's it's interesting. If you if I played you two trailers, one that was two and a half minutes and another one that was three minutes, you would feel the difference every time, no matter how many, even if you loved it, you'd still be like, wow, I loved it, but it felt really long. 
And it's it's because I feel like we're programmed in that for some reason that that magical span of two and a half minutes, it must be something cerebral in our attention spans because it I can I can feel it when it goes over. I know most people can feel it when it goes over, which is why occasionally they would reserve the right to do that for films like Lord of the Rings or Dune or Mad Max. And it used to be in, in the in the theatrical trailer world the theaters would actually grant you one extension per year per studio. So if you had one big movie that you wanted to run lo- a trailer long, you, you were granted that. But you had to kind of petition for it, I think. <laughs> That's really interesting. So I have a, another completely different focus question about like when you went off to start the refinery, like how did you get your first clients? You said that you were like working out of someone's house. But did you just have like all these relationships from the different companies that you worked for that you could pull up, pull from? Was it like really easy to land gigs with Disney or was that kind of like a hard push just despite your connections to them, for example? I'm trying to think of the statute of limitations. I guess we're past it now. It's been 17 years. But when I was working (laughs) at Disney and of course I was a client and so I was working on my own projects that I would vend out to to agencies. But let me let me go back and answer the question. Number one, it's it's always a challenge to get clients. In in our business, clients are really it's all about relationships. It's all about who do I get along with, who do I have a shorthand with, and who do I trust. Mostly, I'm saying that from the studios hiring the agencies. But what happens over time is if you have success in your career working for another agency, you're usually talking to the studio executives, and and they do know they know who's cutting it, they know who's who's behind it. It's always a collaborative effort between a producer, a creative director, the editor. But there are times where, you know, the editor sometimes spins magic. And if if the studio executive comes back to that person and says, hey, you cut that last movie for me. I got another one. Can you put this editor on it? And they put the editor on it and they have success again. You can start to see what happens, you know. But I think that I was fortunate enough to build some of those relationships early on in my career, but definitely at Trailer Park. And then what I was getting to is when I went to Disney and knew I was leaving Disney, one of the other executives there was working on a film that he was having some difficulty with. And I said, well, I particularly, I I think I could do a better job on that trailer. And he's like, well, if you want to cut a version, go ahead. Meanwhile, I was still an executive at Disney. We weren't supposed to do that. (laughs) But on the side, I, on the side, I, I cut a version of the trailer and presented it. And he saw it. He's like, oh my God, you're right. That is better. And then it had no slate on it. No one knew who cut it, but he just put it up in a meeting and people agreed that that was a better trailer. And then a few months later, after noodling it, I said, well, listen, I'm starting my own agency with my partners. Can I continue to work on that? And he's like, oh, I was going to tell you to package it all up and give it to another agency so they could work on it so we could keep it going. I was like, are you kidding? (laughs) I'm starting an agency, please. He said, well, because you're brand new and I don't know what to expect, I'll let you work on it, but you're going to have to also give it to one of the other agencies as a backup in case you don't have the resources to pull it off. Oh, wow. For us, we did pull it off. But that was, you know, the first week of work for me. My, my two print partners had started a little bit earlier than I did because I was locked into a contract at Disney. So when I started, I was cutting that trailer on a laptop in a, in a desk outside of my business partner's office. <laughs> wow. You know? And then that that grew into me hiring an assistant editor and a coordinator. But for a while, there it was just the three of us. And there's a crazy story. Shortly after, when I was working on that trailer, uh, I'd also done a lot of work with Fox in the past and kind of bugged them. And they threw a trailer at me as well. So now I'm one guy with two trailers to cut for big studio films. 
And I remember him coming to my my office. It was like a Wednesday night and he came in at like, you know, six o'clock and said, all right, we have a trail. I have to present this trailer in the morning. I had already started on something. He's like, I have some ideas. And he came in and I had I did have a desk with a laptop, but my TV was on the floor with zero furniture. <laughs> and so we we sat on the floor and talked about it and kind of came up with a structure and an idea of what we wanted from the trailer. And he left at 10 o'clock at night and I cut till four, four thirty in the morning. Wow. And we had a whole plan where I, because my assistant was gone, my coordinator was gone. So four 30 in the morning, I burned my own DVD. I got in the car, I drove it to West Hollywood where we had coordinated. I knew which car was his. He, he lowered the window in his car crack. I threw the DVD into his front seat and drove home and went to sleep for an hour and got up to an email that said, okay, I presented it. They love it. They have notes come back in the office. And so I showered and got back in at like 9am to get going. And then until I don't know, 10 o'clock at night that night. Yeah, it was crazy. It's amazing. Can you say what movies those, those trailers are for? Like the one that you did that the first one and then the second one. So the, the first one was old dogs with, Robin Williams and John Travolta. Nice. That might've been one of Robin's last films. I can't remember. And then the second one was this amazingly awful movie called All About Steve with Sandra Bullock and Bradley Cooper. Oh, I remember that. That was like a Razzies <laughs> movie, right? Wasn't it? Yeah, that, that was, was like the big story of the Razzies. That Sandra Bullock won the Oscar for- Yes. Uh, for what, for, for, God, what's it called? The football movie. The Blindside. Uh, yeah, it was Blindside. the Blindside year. The Blindside and won the Razzie for yes. All About Steve in the same year. I re- and wow. I think she attended the Razzie. I think I remember. Yeah. yeah. She accepted the award. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, you were talking about, you know, you were saying I could do a better job of making a trailer than this one that I saw. Can we talk a little bit about the art of crafting the structure of a trailer? I mean... I think we're going to have a lot of questions to this friend, so I'm trying not to say too much right now. But how do you evaluate it? Do you watch the whole movie and then scenes stand out to you? Or are you given the selects and you're not even allowed to watch the movie or given what exactly you're supposed to pull from? So you're talking about the, the experience with clients when we get a project? Yeah. And I know that agency protocol falls into it, but I'm looking for just a big picture approach of how do you watch something and turn it into a bite size product? It's a great question and one that probably has a million answers depending upon who you talk to. Um, I certainly have my own process, but there are a lot of trailer editors out there that are brilliant beyond me, like way more brilliant than I am. And it's funny, as I get older, I'm like, you know, it's been a while since I was cutting every day. I, I run the agency now. I don't cut as much. I still enjoy cutting and I get in there. But for me, I... And I didn't do this as much when I was working at Trailer Park, when I was in the thick of cutting every day. But as I started my own agency, I started doing this. I try to watch, I watch the either the film or the series. I try to watch it cold without notes, without stopping. I try to watch it as if I was watching it at home. And then as soon as I'm done, then I take notes. I'm like, what do I remember? What are the things, the sticky salient moments that stood out to me that really, that really resonated with me? And if I had to kind of think about what this film or or series is about like what's the top level what's the what do i think what about this piece of content do i think would get me to watch it because that's really all i have to go on i can't imagine what would make someone else but i can assume that if i pick up what would make me watch it there's some other people that would probably pick up on that too and so then i start to think about those scenes or sticky 
salient moments and and how I'd arrange them to tell the story and what parts of what I saw are are absolutely necessary and what parts are not. And I think every piece of content kind of has to tell you what what the trailer wants to be. There's no formula that's going to work every time because some stories are very easy to tell and don't require a lot. And some stories are incredibly complicated and you have to kind of pick and choose which elements of that story are relevant to you. And the hard part about it is we're not always right. You know, the best trailer editors, creative directors, producers, you know, you're like, I I got it. If it was me, I'd only tell this part of the story. And then you present it to the studio and they're like, that's exactly what we don't want to do, <laughs> you know, but the interesting thing, and I talked a little bit about this in, in my train robber masterclass series, but to me, as I've matured in my career, I'm, I'm finding that music is everything, mm. right? Because finding the perfect tone for the trailer, some piece of music or pieces of music that really encapsulate what I want to feel from the film or series is step one. And, and if you can nail that, you have a good chance at nailing the trailer, I think. Do you? It's good. It's a good answer. <laughs> I have like three or four questions. I'll just start with one of them. Do you often pull music from the screener? Like, do you, like, there's a piece of music in the movie or the show that you're like, oh my God, like this, this is really a great piece. And then you bring it into your, to your edit. Or do you not really get the opportunity to do that? And it's like, oh, you're only pulling music from other places. It does happen occasionally where there's a piece of music in the film, but a lot of times when we get the films, it's early on in the process and we can't cut with a married track. So usually when we get the features, it's mixed minus the music. Mm-hmm. Oh. Dialogue and sound effects and zero music. So you don't even get to see like what the idea of the music. A lot of be. times we don't. Wow. A lot of times we don't. Sometimes we'll get to go to a screening. And if we get a screener of the project, meaning if they're further along when we get into it and they have a screener, then yes, then we can get a sense of, okay, I get the tone and vibe. But so often it comes to us. And if it's a big film, it's probably not scored yet, you know? And so they don't really want to play the, the music. And the other hard part is even if it has a big popular song in the cut, number one, it doesn't mean it's going to stay in the cut. And number two, it doesn't mean that you have the rights to use it for marketing. Right. And that the music rights issues I could talk for another year about. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, in my work, I, I, we deal with that. So I, I, I can imagine how complicated it must be. <laughs> for oh my trailer. gosh. Yeah. I mean, well, and, and, you know, you think like, oh my gosh, you have it in the film. I really want it. I love it. And they're like, well, it's going to cost five times as much to use it in the advertising. Wow. Okay. I know we both have like 45 questions about this issue, so I will also limit myself to one. Can you talk a little bit about, you said that you were evaluating the film and trying to figure out like what would convince someone like me to watch this movie, right? Are you pulling in different people from different demographics to be trailer editors or are you putting yourself in the place of what you think is the presumed audience of the film or like how do you project what people would like from a film if it's not necessarily your taste that's a great question and something that we're definitely working on i feel like the entertainment marketing business in general over time since the beginning there's been a lot of nepotism you know for better for worse it just is what it is and i think that in the refinery, particularly, we're making valiant efforts to change that, mm-hmm. you know, entry level positions should be just that open to anybody entry level, you know, and so really trying to do that. The other thing is 
and I've got a big push now is that there's a lot of talent. I mean, with all the content creators and access to editing software, you know, I'm finding that people are getting into cutting trailers earlier and earlier in their careers, sometimes even in high school. Mm. Now with, with fanboy trailers and things like that, there's a lot of untapped talent out in the world that is multicultural. And so on that end, we're trying to find and explore. And I encourage people, if you have a passion for movie making, let me know. I did have someone reach out to me recently in LinkedIn, who was just that. He was a guy living in Arizona, had a passion for filmmaking, especially for trailer making. And, you know, tried to connect with me on LinkedIn as like a Hail Mary. And I saw it and I saw some of his stuff and I reached back out and said, where are you? And he's like, oh, I just moved to Los Angeles. And I was like, well, let me take out to breakfast. That was very nice of you. Oh, my God. Well, I was inspired by his persistence, right, and his courage. And I took him out to breakfast, and it was the funniest thing because I don't ever see myself this way. But he sat down. He's like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm sitting here with you right now. And I was like, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? I'm just a guy who lives in Encino with my family, you know. (laughs) But his passion for, for what we do and his thought process was different. And I really love that. And I love, you know, the passion goes a long way. We can teach a lot for up and coming talent. But if you're, if you don't want it that badly, you know, that being said, I think a lot of people from a lot of cultures want it really badly. And that's what we're excited to to introduce. So that's one side of the question. The B side of the question is we do have a pretty broad group of talent. And when a project comes in, I really try to assign the right people, the right staff members to be on it. And it's hard because I do feel like if there's a certain project that I know this person would be passionate about, Content-wise, I'm probably going to put them on it, yeah. right? Because they're probably the core audience. And if I can get their take on why they would want to watch this, I would put a lot of value into that. Like, is your staff like all in-house or do you work with a lot of freelancers in addition to that? And, and, and this is a completely different kind of question that I normally ask, but like, how do you manage that as, as you know, owner of a company? Like, is it easy to keep a bunch of people on staff or are you kind of forced often to work with freelancers because of the economics of that? It's a good question. In the past, we've been primarily staff positions with a few freelance pools here or there. That's changing to, you know, our freelance pools growing a little bit more. But I think that was just out of necessity because we're coming off of, you know, two massive strikes. So we're coming off of COVID then coming off of two massive strikes. And so I would say it's probably, I don't know. 80%, 75% staff and the rest freelance for us. I think what's interesting is the longer you work with someone, the more of a shorthand you have with them, the more you trust, the more projects can go seamlessly. And bringing freelancers in and out is always kind of a gamble of like, okay, how are you going to gel with the team? How quickly are we going to get to the finish line? So there's, there's good and bad. Like I actually really like bringing freelancers in because it mixes up the pool a little bit. But I also know that my creative directors, like they have go-tos. They're like, well, I know if I get this project in, I can go to this person and this person and they'll bang it out and, and it'll be great. We can move on. So nice. Both Auric and I work in the genre space. And as a producer's rep, I get questions from filmmakers all the time that are like, well, my film is genre adjacent. So, <laughs> And I, th- I feel like you probably get this all the time, Brett, but it's like, do you lean into genre elements if a film is not necessarily a hard G genre film? Or are you really trying to be accurate in representing the film and what audiences can expect? I think that is almost 100% wholly dependent on our clients. Mm. Over the course of my career, I've been asked many times to 
invent a film that isn't there in the trailer. Right. You know, I can't tell you, you know, I remember working, we were working on Avatar and the client was like, you can show anything but blue people. <laughs> remember, what was the bird watching movie with Jack Black? Oh my God, the the great something year, the best year. The best the, year. Best I year. love that Steve movie. Martin, Jack Black. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I remember working on that saying, you can make it about anything but bird watching. <laughs> and you're a little bit like, you do real, like the whole film is about bird watching, you know? So <laughs> that's the extreme. What what we found in the past, and again, it's a different audience today. I would say ten years ago, the genre adjacent in the in the entertainment marketing space, we would call feathered fishes because hmm. it didn't know where it wanted to be. And the truth is, audiences kind of want to know where you can you can tell them and trick them, but they don't necessarily like the feathered fish as far as they don't know where to place it. They'd actually rather you just say it's a sci fi movie, or you know, which is interesting because in today's world netflix has a whole algorithm it's like well people like car movies and people like space movies let's do a space car movie you know and and i guess it works sometimes but they also aren't afraid of niche you know audiences because they don't track it the same way but i do feel today's audiences are much more savvy they don't want to be sold a bill of goods that isn't what it is and i think that i don't know i'm I'm appreciative of audiences being a little more intelligent and wanting fresh content which means if it's adjacent, that's okay. Just give me an interesting concept or idea that I can wrap my brain around, even if it's something I've never seen before. This question kind of goes in, in line with something that you said about like, you know, being told you can't make it about this or you can't make the trailer about that. But like, do you always get full creative control or do you often get like some sort of brief handed to you with the content? Like, it needs to include this beat, this beat, this beat, and it can include this scene because we want to save it for the movie, et cetera, et cetera. Again, that, that's 100% client dependent and such a mixed bag. You know, <clears throat> there are definitely times we get a deck and, and a whole str- strategy that's been thought out for us and say, this is, this is the lane, go. A lot of times, especially with the big studio films, they're coming to us or they're going to multiple agencies at the same time without any of that in hopes of finding a spark that came from an agency's perspective, you know? And so a lot of times, you know, your movie coming out like Furiosa, there might be six, seven agencies on it. Wow. Wow. And then the idea is if you let them run free, you know, looking at what you get back and seeing if something pops and you're like, Ooh, I, it was unexpected. That's cool. Or that really works. And, and then of course, you know, no studio execs just can free form go. I think what they're going to do is they're going to get it back and be like, Oh, I like this about it. Or I don't like that. Scrap that, do something else, you know, cause they definitely have, insider information as far as what the studio's ideas are and what their their projections of what they want it to be and also the filmmakers. A lot of times we don't have direct feedback from the filmmakers until the trailer's already moving in a direction that the filmmakers like. And then for that process, when you're competing with other agencies, are you getting paid to do that? Or is that all like kind of like they're just expecting you to do it to win the job, basically? Yeah, thankfully, unlike the world of retail advertising, we do get paid. Yeah. So if we're, we're nice. put on a project, we're getting paid a creative fee to to come up with a trailer. and We're getting paid through the whole process. But, you know, like everybody else, I think it's a competitive space and everybody wants to win. And it does happen where sometimes they'll be like, "Ooh, we love the front half of your trailer and we love the back half of their trailer. And sometimes the executive will just pick this, the agency they want to work with and say, okay, package up your trailer and give it to this agency. And sometimes they'll go to both agencies. Okay. You take the front half of theirs. You take the back half of theirs and let's see who puts it together better. 
you know. Oh, okay. So if you get chosen, you do get, you do get a longer engagement basically because you have to do more work, right? So like if you do win, like you do get paid an additional fee basically. If there's no additional fee for winning, the additional fee used to, well, it still kind of is. The, the additional fee for winning was when you start on the television campaign and now you're creating spots and creating more of the campaign elements. Mm. That's where you can start to profit more than the trailer. But we're also in a different world today. It used to be, you know, certain clients, you know, you could cut a hundred TV spots. I'm not, and you get paid for all of them. I'm not saying they would air all of them or even finish all of them, but you would cut a lot of TV spots because years ago with different networks and different cable networks, you would kind of cherry pick your audiences based on the network. You're like, oh, it's CBS, it's older white males, you know, it's MTV, it's a younger generation. And you would then create spots for film that were audience specific. And that would require a massive TV campaign. And I think the, you know, the world is changing. Number one, broadcast television, unless you're running in live events, who's watching, you know, live where commercials play. And again, with Freebie or with other free streaming services, where now commercials are being injected back into it. There's a world where that's taking place, but, but the research is changing. Studios used to believe that you had to change out the creative on spots week to week to week to kind of keep it fresh and keep people engaged and keep showing them a little bit more. And I think what some research from what I'm I'm hearing from friends who are at the studios is you can have the same spot run because until someone's seen it seven times, they don't really, doesn't really stick with them. And so all of a sudden you're like, well, it takes seven times to see it. Then I can run fewer spots longer. Mm. Going back to that short attention span problem too, with our, our society. Let's go back in time to my date with Drew as a filmmaker who would eventually go and spend a lot of time in the trailer entertainment marketing space. What did you learn about the importance of a trailer as a director? Well, it's interesting because I was in the trailer world. I was working at Trailer Park when I did my date with oh. Drew. Oh. So I took some time off. So I already was very well aware of trailers and how it worked. In fact, one of the gimmicks, if you see my date with Drew, one of the tactics of getting to Drew was we cut a trailer, even though we didn't have a film made yet. So we went out and we shot my buddy Brian in my backyard by the pool talking about the concept of, you know, you know, I'm just a guy. I'm an ordinary guy who's always had a crush on Drew Barrymore. And I won $1,100 in this game show. And I'm using that to try to get a date with Drew Barrymore, you know. And coincidentally, in the behind the scenes making of that film, we actually snuck Brian into the Charlie's Angels premiere to try to get him close to Drew, which Charlie's Angels <laughs> full throttle was happening while we were filming. And I was still working at Trailer Park at the time. I was working on trailers and TV spots for Charlie's Angels. So I knew when the premiere was. I knew when everything was happening. And then coincidentally, after that, before the climax of the film, I was actually cutting a trailer for Drew Barrymore's next movie, which was called 50 First Dates uh, with Adam Sandler. And so it was, it was weird to be working on our own film about Drew. And yet every time I came to work at Trailer Park, Drew was on my screen. <laughs> <laughs> you were surrounded by her. So anyway, but but, oh, yeah. to, but I understood the importance of trailer making. And I think that at the time, you know, my day with Drew really was like um, a documentary. I mean, it, it was, it was a documentary. It was a romantic comedy documentary. But I think the tools of cutting trailer where it's like, yes, we were able to film our own footage, but but really the, the crafting of the story came not from some big outline because we're just documenting what's happening and we didn't know where it was going to go, but it was really taking all the footage and then shaping a story out of it, which is what I was used to doing in short form every day. Mm -hmm. So 
like you know that was the like your your feature that you directed like you know back in 2004 did that satisfy a hunger for you as a filmmaker to like go out and make make this movie that like you know got this big you know reception and got out in the world and tons of people saw and was there an urge to do it again or is it kind of like oh i did that and now i'm back to the trailer world and i'm happy living there well it's interesting so i co-directed it right with with my best friends, Brian Herzlinger, who's the guy trying to get the date with Drew, and my high school, college best friend, John Gunn. And both Brian and John were already aspiring directors. John had already directed a feature. Brian had started to direct some stuff. And I was the trailer guy already. And so what happened was after we made the film, they both went and used that as a catalyst to go pursue their directing career. And I looked at it as like, number one, I never wanted to be a director for hire. Like if it was not something that I personally wanted to direct, this was a lot of freaking work. <laughs> I was like, I only want to put that kind of time, effort and energy into something if it's if it's just what I wanted to do. And then when I, I was also spoiled because my date with Drew was done all on our own dime, on our own time, in our own way. And I really was afraid for my own career of like if I was put into limitations of like, well, you only have this much budget and I'm going to tell you what you can and can't do. And I'm going to give you the content. I was like, I don't, I don't really want to do that. And I'd gotten used to living the lifestyle in the entertainment marketing space where I always knew where the next job was coming. And, and, you know, we already had a mortgage on a house and we were anticipating kids. And so I kind of, I went back into this world and doubled down, not that I wouldn't make another film again, but I went in this world and doubled down. And to their credit, Brian and John both, went off to soar, you know, directing and and making features. In fact, John just wrote and directed a feature with Hilary Swank that comes out in February called Ordinary Angels. And Brian has probably done more Christmas movies than any other Jewish director on the planet. Yes, we're so good at Christmas, the Jews. We're we great at it. We yes. really appreciate it. We didn't get it growing up. We're like, <laughs> yes. I want it. I want the magic. <laughs> I had an off-topic question that I'm going to awkwardly segue into right now. For low-budget creators, you know, you go on the Wikipedia page for My Date with Drew, it says the budget was the $1,100 that you had that the competition doled out. What is advice you would give, you know, merging or mid-career filmmakers who don't have a lot of budget to work with in terms of putting it towards trailers or creation of their own trailers? Like what advice can you give for people who may not be able to hire an amazing agency like the refinery? You know, it's a, it's a hard question and no offense to any filmmaker or directors, but I do feel the art of trailer making is different than the art of directing or producing or filmmaking. And I think a lot of times if we, if we're the ones responsible for making the film, it's really hard to pick the film apart into just what I think would make a great trailer. Cause I think we're married to scenes. We're married to moments. We're married to like, well, you can't not have this if you have this or vice versa, or you can't leave that out because the whole thing will fall apart. And so whether you go to a big agency or go find an independent, you know, editor on the side, who's willing to help you, I do think the perspective from someone else to show you like, Hey, here's another way to tell your story in a way that you would have been too afraid to kill your baby to put it together that way, I think is, is crucial. Now, the other hard part about it from, from my perspective, from the agency's perspective is I really don't want to charge an independent filmmaker to do it because it doesn't benefit you and the fact like it's going to cost more 
and it'll benefit you because it might open some doors, which would be great. But it doesn't benefit me because once a studio picks up your film, they're going to hire whatever agency they want, not the agency you want. And a lot of times if when you go to get your film sold to a distributor or a studio, they're going to say, hey, thanks so much for that trailer. We have our own ideas of what a trailer would be, and we're going to take it in a different direction. Not all the time, but a lot of times that happens. And so it's it's a slippery slope. I don't, you know, it's definitely worth the investment of having someone really good create a trailer for you, you know, because I've seen a lot of really bad trailers <laughs> and it doesn't do the filmmaker justice. Yeah. So I'm trying to think of what the real answer to your question is. I think if whatever you can afford, it's good to get a different perspective on the trailer. And I think that, you know, I would certainly offer to independent filmmakers that go ahead and and I'm happy to give a perspective on it. If you've already have a trailer that someone else has cut, then maybe give some suggestions on what I might do. And that doesn't cost a lot <laughs> versus give it to me and I'll give it to my team and we'll create a trailer because we certainly have a threshold of a, of a minimum. Not to say that we haven't done a lot of indie sizzles because we certainly do. And we've we've come to agreements and sometimes there's a hot new editor on the staff that's just hungry to do it. And I'm feeding you and feeding them at the same time. So this is kind of like a big, tough question to ask. I'm gonna do my best. You know, I've, I've, I'm a humongous film fan. I've seen so many trailers. When I was younger, trailers were like the thing. It was like so exciting to see the new trailer for the new movie. And like, I remember the trailer for like the matrix and mission possible Two. these like amazing trailers that I'll never forget. But, the, but basically what I'm trying to say is like, there's some trailers, especially today, where they feel like they are all like the same, like they follow the same kind of structure and like they almost always like give away the whole movie where they like they set, they do a setup, they do a beginning, a middle, and then they have an end to the trailer. And it's like, then you basically know the whole story besides the final act of the movie. Mm -hmm. And then there's other trailers where like they're so creative and they're so different and they like don't give anything away about the movie. And they're like almost like they're, they're presenting a concept and like something that's intriguing you to like know more about the movie. So the question is like, like how is that formed? Is that like something that is decided by the agency? Is that something that comes from the director of the movie that like, Hey, I really want to do something completely different with this. Or, or is it like, Oh, studios just love these trailers that like give the audience a full picture of what the movie is so they can bring in as many eyeballs as possible. Like, how is it? How does that happen? it's 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 a question that I've been asked a lot and there's actually a very simple answer. It's not what you think. I don't think there's any studio executive, agency head, creative director, whoever wants to give away the whole movie in a trailer. I don't think anybody wants to do that. I think what happens sometimes at the studio level is if they're not sure if the trailer is working or not, we can do market research, right? So we can have a test audience and we can ask that, that test audience questions about what, what's working and not working in the trailer. And based on that subjective information, we can assign it a numerical value. And you see where the disconnect starts to happen. So a lot of times a studio, if they're not feeling secure on where the trailer is going, we can do a lot of market research. The good with market research is you can start to get a trend of like, ooh, audiences are starting to respond. I think this is working. The the negative is when you ask someone a question, it's hard to, to pull anything from, are you interested or not interested? It's easy to pull from, did you remember the scene where this happened? Did you understand this plot point? Did you understand these specifics? And so I think what testing sometimes does is backs you into a corner of painting the whole picture. 
Mm. And if you paint the whole picture at the end of the, the marketing, the audience will say, yes, I understood it. I know this, I know that I understand, you know, and so your score gets really high, right? Your numerical valued score of what that trailer is doing gets high. And so sometimes we lose sight of that. And I say we, meaning the team, and we're, you know, we could certainly as an agency speak up, but I think a lot of times studio executives, the studios in general tend to get afraid of a film. And so if they have a higher testing result, they may go with that. Versus if you put together an artful piece that creates a vibe and a tone, but doesn't really tell me enough, then as a studio executive, I'm putting my career on the line to say, I'm going to go with this. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to follow my own sword to say I was wrong. Ooh. That makes so much sense. That's like such a great answer to the, to the question because it, it totally is logical to be like, oh, yeah, if, the, if this is the way that you're scoring movies and you get a better score, of course, they're going to go in this way. And then that would make sense. Like why you see the similar type of trailers all over the place because they're getting scored higher because of they're doing a thing. But it's not necessarily like what makes a trailer good. It's just the way that it's been scored. Which I'm is also terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also curious, you know, I do, I do. I'm excited by the next generation of filmmakers. I'm excited by the next generation of studio executives and creatives across the board, because I think people are, are really focusing back on the art of it all, which I'm excited to see. I think, you know, it's, it's like everything else is like when the, the generations pass and the next generation, you know, we're, we're, I keep talking about generations, but I feel like, Today's youth does not want to be marketed to. They can smell it a mile away. You know, they don't want to be told, you know, this Friday, it's the biggest movie event. <laughs> simply can't miss it, you know, but that's what we used to do. That's how we used to sell things. And today's audience, like, just show me and leave me alone. Right. And then when it comes to digital marketing, they don't, don't even show me, like, give me the added value stuff. Give me where... Chris Pratt's doing something stupid that I can share with my friends. And I know you're marketing the next Guardians movie, but I just want to share this piece of content because it was funny. And so eventually the, that voice will rise to the top, right? And at some mm. point, the studio's exec will be like, oh, you know, we're going we're gonna to triple down on our digital marketing and we're going to have a trailer and we might have a piece of key art, but I'm going to focus all my efforts on where the voice is the loudest. And that will probably change the way trailers are made. <laughs> We end the podcast with the same questions for every guest. And I'm going to look at, I'm going to do an abridged version. All right, I'm going to skip the first question. That's just not germane. Yeah, yeah. But the second question is, what's the best filmmaking advice or storytelling advice or career advice, however you want to interpret it, that you've ever received? Mm -hmm. And get ready because the next one's going to be the opposite. <laughs> the best piece of advice I ever received was perseverance, perseverance, perseverance and passion. I think if, if you're passionate about anything, I think the opportunities will come, but it has to be true passion. You can't fake passion. It can't be, you know, can't be like, Ooh, I'm going to love basketball movies because the next Michael Jordan movie is coming and I want to work on it. And you're like, yeah, but dude, you never play basketball in your life. You're like, yeah, but it's so cool. You know? <laughs> and I think the perseverance part of like, we only learn from our failures. We don't learn anything from our successes. And I think that having the perseverance to be like, oh, I tried that. It didn't work. Okay. What did I learn from it? Bring it to the next project. Okay. What did I learn from it? Bring, you know, and, and over the course of time, I think when we talk about our careers and yes, you'll talk about the successes, but you'll probably find more pleasure in talking about the times something didn't work and what you got from it. So then what's the worst filmmaking or creative advice that you've ever received? 
Uh, <laughs> just do what they tell you. <laughs> right. I tend to find that, you know, I think earlier on in my life, in my career, I was very much a rule follower. Do what they say. Don't break the rules. I probably grew up in that generation, you know, whereas, you know, tests were tests and F's were failings. The worst thing you could ever get was a fail. You know? And, <laughs> and I was a good kid, you know, I was a good kid. And it wasn't till I really started my career and was kind of well into my career of like, my gut's telling me to do this, but they're telling me to do this. Okay. I'll do that. And to, to get to a place where you're confident enough and you don't have to be combative about it. Like you you can say, I hear what you're saying, but I really believe that this would be a better way to go because of whatever your reasoning is. And I think that most people want to hear it if you can present it in that way. Do you have a goal as as an artist, as a storyteller, or for your career, which is the same thing, but you know. I have a goal. Yes, I want to be the greatest entertainment marketing agency on the planet. No, I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I get to do what I love every day and I still do love it. My focus is definitely shifting now from being the doer to maybe being the inspirer. You know, I'm finding a lot of passion and joy in, in doing podcasts like this and doing speaking engagements where I can share some of the things I've learned along the way and hopefully help shape other people's careers. I think that's the paying it forward part of, of my life. I think there's a lot. There's a book I want to write about it. There's speaking stuff I want to do. And I'm getting myself more involved with the next generation of creatives that are coming into our own agency where I really want to sit down with them and hear what they have to say and offer some advice or some suggestions and and help navigate their careers because that's fun. It's, it's really fun to watch someone shine. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice that you would give yourself? Be fearless. I think fear kind of stops us in our tracks most of the time. And, and you know... Even today, we're coming off of a strike and I have certain fears about the business. You know, we've been we've been in survival mode and I'm sure that the work's going to flow back the way it used to. But, you know, you have to kind of use that fear to your advantage as opposed to get swallowed up by the fear. Last question. Is making movies hard? A thousand percent. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I feel like it has to come from a place of passion. And I think that if you're really passionate about the story that you have to tell, because you believe in what you're doing, then that passion will will inspire and, and motivate you and, and keep you persistent and, and uh, enable you to persevere through whatever challenges come with it. Amazing. <laughs> so where should people go if they want to learn more about the refinery, see some of your trailers? What should they do? So our our do? website is therefinerycreative.com. It's pretty easy to navigate. They have a bunch of we have pretty much everything. We try to keep it as current as we can. It's fairly easy to navigate, but there's also a contact us. So if you ever want to get a hold of me or get a hold of anyone at the agency, I encourage you to do so. And then on the side note, there's also the master class that I taught. That's through trainrobber.com, which is a, I think it's a 14 part trailer cutting class that kind of talks about the ins and outs and at least my theories of how to make a great piece of marketing. I know we're going to do a second part to it soon. Because the first part's a lot of theory and me talking about it. the second part will actually be showing my timeline and like, here's how I'd lay something out, you know, in the nitty gritty. 
Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show! Liz, what do you remember about our chat with Brett? Just that I, like... Wasn't sure where the conversation was going to go, but as soon as we started talking to Brett, I was, I can't, I like, the questions were just like germinating in my brain. And I think for you, and then we realized that we weren't just talking to this guy who owns like an entertainment marketing agency, right? Like a trailer house. We were talking to this like expert in film marketing, which we so I mean, it's like it's really rare to get to pick the brain of someone who has touched so many massive movies. So I just was I, I think that I just really enjoyed the conversation. That's that's what I have yeah. to say about you. Yeah, it was a total geek out session about trailers and, <laughs> and the art of a trailer. And, you know, I, there was so many other questions I, I wanted to ask him about the way the trailers get formed, you know, because it's very different. Like, I learned this a little while ago. That it was very different than how I thought it was when I was younger. Because I always just assumed it was like the filmmaker was the one behind it. But, like, that's not at all the case. You know, it's like this whole crazy system and business and, you know, often the distributors Bids. are doing it. I didn't even know about the bidding process for yeah, trailers. Bidding. Yeah, and that they do that with the big studio systems. The big studios do these bi- these big bids, bid-offs. I guess it makes sense. But like, you know, it was kind of cool to hear the part where they were saying that if they, they are competing with other trailer houses to, to do a trailer, that they're all getting paid. Yeah. So like everyone's getting paid their a fair wage to do that work. Where in like the script system, it's like, you know, everyone's competing <laughs> and not yeah. getting paid. Yeah. And it's like, ah, oh, dude, terrible. But I mean, so that was cool. It was really cool that that was the way it worked. And. That, you know, that's just part of the system. And I'm like, man, if they could spend so much money on marketing, why aren't people spending more money on movies? <laughs> like, it's true. But I guess that's how it goes. <laughs> but, you know, it also is very exciting and is something that I can't wait to talk to you about is this round of the game. So for those who have not uh, listened to the show before, the game is a game that our producer Eric Toms invented. And it's basically a independent filmmaking like challenge or scenario that we have to figure out and like see like what will we do in the scenario? Like how could we get out of this? Like what would we do if this was the challenge that we were faced? Because as independent filmmakers, we're faced with crazy challenges every time we try to make anything. So this week I'm going to ask Liz a question. Liz has not heard this question before. She does not know anything about this. She'll be answering it completely blind. I'm actually reading it blind as well. Here we go. You've been approached by financiers. They would like to finance your next feature. Amazing. However, they really just want you to remake a film you've already made because they think it'll be successful and for far less money. Hmm. Do you (laughs) take the money and recreate a crappier version of a film you've already made? Try to convince them to make a new film in the same vein. Flat out say no because you're an artist and you do not repeat yourself. Other. What do you do, director? What do you do? Oh, well, I definitely repeat myself. I feel like most filmmakers are just making the same movie over and over and over again. So I'm not (laughs) against the idea of remaking my movie or something very similar. But I don't I don't know a world where I could take my 100K feature and make it for for less. 
but better? Like, that seems nearly impossible. I would give it a try, though. <laughs> I mean, I guess, actually, that sounds really fun. Like, take all of the things that I thought were mis- were mistakes of the first feature and, like, fix them. Okay. I think I would do it. I think I would say, challenge accepted, people who want to pay me money to make a movie. I'm happy to streamline my first feature and try to make it for cheaper. And I have no notes. I would do that. That's crazy. That's my simple answer. Alrick, what about you? Yeah. I mean, I think I would probably talk about other ideas. I would probably do like, be like, okay, well, have you considered like, what about this? Like, this is kind of a similar idea, but it's like very different. Like the thing else I was tooling around with, I would try to convince them like to do something a little bit different around the same kind of concept and idea. But if they were like, no, 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 we want you to recreate the alternate with this budget that we have that's less than what you made the alternate, which is also like insane. But yeah, I would take the challenge. I'd be like, oh yeah, okay, look, let's figure out like what we could do with the budget that we have to make this movie um, and tell this story, you know, and just see see what could be done. And I, and I, I argue with the way this question is asked, at least in the A, where it says, take the money and recreate a crappier version of a film you've already made. I don't necessarily think that just if you have less money, that the movie is going to be yeah. crappier. Yeah, like you could streamlined, maybe. Yeah, streamlined. I like the way you said streamlined. I just think you could just figure out a different way to do it. And I think like having the the experience of making the movie will inform you of like what you could do to like make it better. So yeah, I'm in agreement. Although I probably would be like, but what about, <laughs> like, could we do? Like, I, I would definitely ask that question for sure. But if it came down to it, yeah, I'd do it too. Well, do you agree with us, audience, friends and family, or do you not agree with us? You can send us a question, comment or suggestion or a response to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Check out the International Screenwriters Association. It's the ISA, and it's an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs they offer. Head on over to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Brett Wynn for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Rymoot, for doing the editing. Thanks to Robert Jones for handling all of our social media. Thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. Thanks to all of you for listening, and talk to y'all next week. crazy daughter who will not yeah. listen to me <laughs> she's adorable um people can't see it but she's adorable